0: Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. All right. And so for the rest of us, uh, let's just pray and then we're going to jump into, into things. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we we turn to you now. Uh, We turn to your word in hopes that you will speak to us today. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and our ears and our minds to hear and be shaped by your wisdom. And we know that whenever your word is spoken, seeds are planted and hearts are changed. And so we ask for that right now, Lord. And we ask for you to speak through me, God. I am not you standing up here. I've prepared everything I possibly can, but we want to hear your voice, not just Aaron's voice. So we just ask that you would speak through me and to your people this morning. And we pray all this in your name, amen. Amen. All right, so can I just say to start, I'm so glad you made it to church this morning. I'm so glad, and I'm so glad those online were able to set everything up and get your coffee and come and join us this morning. Maybe you're uh, watching it later in the week, and I'm still glad. I'm still glad you're watching. Um, Parents of babies and toddlers, especially, I'm glad you're here this morning. I've never before fully appreciated the miracle of arriving on Church on Time when you have kids um, until Lucas was born, (laughs) so kudos to you this morning that you got here. Um, Even if you were late, you got here, and that's... Something to celebrate, um, and there, there are actually a lot of things that you learn when you first become a parent. Uh, one of them is actually how impatient you are um, as a person. I, I had a younger sibling growing up. I also worked at Starbucks, and I'd have people come up and order uh, drinks while they're on the phone. Okay, I thought I had a lot of patience. I thought I had a lot of patience, uh, but then having a kid exposed me <laughs> and exposed that I'm really, I'm really an impatient person. Um, Chelsea and I, for example, we started eating at the table. So we're trying to start this thing where we eat together as a family. Um, I grew up eating in front of the TV mostly, and so I've never really eaten at the table as a family. Um, and so, you know, Chelsea wanted to start this with us. And so the first night we did, a, did it, we all three of us were sitting at the table, and I finished my food pretty quickly. Like, I'm, I'm a fast eater. And usually I do uh, the dishes afterwards. It's kind of the, the routine we have. Uh, so after supper, I go and do the dishes. So I got up uh, off the, you know, I finished my plate, and I got up to go do the dishes and Chelsea goes, um, where do you think you're going? <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm finished my food. I'm going to go do dishes. He's like, no, you've got to wait till everybody's done their food. Then you can be excused. Or you have to ask to be excused. I was like, I, well, I didn't grow up eating at the tables. I didn't know that, right? Um, and normally, that would be totally fine. But Lucas is the slowest eater. He eats so slow. I mean, you've got to cut it up in little pieces and wait for him to swallow. Um, and so I sat there. I <laughs> sat back down, and I was shaking my leg. I'm an anxious person, uh, and I was staring at the dishes. They're just calling my name, and I'm looking out the window. We have a beautiful window there. We see an apple tree out there. I'm looking at, making small talk with Chelsea, going, "Oh, so the weather was really nice today. It was raining, <laughs> and uh, it was hard. It was hard. I, I realized I have a lot to learn when it comes to patience. When it comes to patience, um, and I'm not the only one uh, who struggles with patience. And in, in fact, we—it's been noted multiple times through multiple books that have been coming out, and podcasts, and so and psychologists who've been studying this, we live here in North America in a hurry culture, a hurry culture. We actually pride ourselves as a culture, as a society, on how fast we move, right? Uh, Amazon offers same-day delivery. Well, I guess here on the island it's... Couple day delivery, um, but in Calgary, you know, you get something the same day. Um, binging shows on Netflix, you know, they they just release a whole bunch of episodes at once, and you watch them all in one weekend. Um, listening to podcasts that are advertising, you know, if you follow these five steps, you'll have a perfect life, right? All of those kinds of things. And a, a prime example of this hurry culture we live in is that. Did you know when you go to an elevator and you're standing in there and you click the closed door button, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything. It actually isn't programmed to do anything. It's just a random placebo button there to try and pacify the impatient people who are like, come on, I don't want to be in the elevator with that person. Or I have some places, I have places to go. Isn't that crazy? So they don't actually do anything. They're just there for, for show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jocelyn's Googling it right now. Don't worry, I Googled it. I Googled it just to make sure. <laughs> um, so so rarely do we pause to reflect on our obsession with instant results, uh, instant gratifications, all, all those things. And, and our technology actually caters to the impatient culture that we live in. Uh, in, a fa- in fact, it's, it's discipling us. Our technology disciples us in a way to be impatient people. Uh, and only in the last 20 years or so, people have started seriously asking the question, how is this affecting our emotional, our mental, and even our physical health? And so all sorts of books and podcasts and things have been uh, released in the last 20 years talking about that. And I would add that it also affects our spiritual life as well. Uh, John Mark Comer, who's a, a great author, and in his book that was released a few years ago, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he says this. He says, an overbusy, digitally distracted life of speed is the greatest threat to spiritual life that we face in the modern world. It's the greatest threat that we have to our spiritual life. So in these last few weeks, we've been walking through a series on how God is in the process of making all things new. Specifically, we've been talking about God's work in us, in our hearts, making us new and transforming our hearts into the likeness of Jesus. And the text that we've been anchored in for this series has been Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, which says... And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. If you haven't caught this since we started this series, Jesus is the one saying that, okay? (laughs) It says he, Jesus is the one saying that. Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. And I just want to point out, he doesn't say... I have made all things new, as if it's something that has already taken place. Nor does he say, I am going to make all things new, as though we have to wait until he starts that and does that. No, he says very clearly, I am making, making all things new. I'm making all things new. Now that Jesus is in charge, he's reversing right now, today, since His death and resurrection all the way to today and tomorrow and onwards, he's reversing the curse of sin and its effect on us and our relationships and creation itself. And that making part is really key for this morning. There's a sense of inevitability in what Jesus is saying here. It reminds me of going uh, on a mission trip when Chelsea and I were serving uh, in the Bahamas as missionaries and we took our group to go on a mission trip to the States. <laughs> it's kind of weird, but we went to the States for a mission trip um, and we went to Tennessee. And at, at the end of the trip, we, you know, we had a whole week of hard work. We took all the kids and went uh, to the Chattanooga River and we did class five rapids. That's what the kids wanna do. Class five is the highest class that you can go. Um, and I was so nervous. I, I actually was physically ill in the bathroom before. And I, the whole time leading up, I was like, I'll plan it, but I'm not going. <laughs> you guys can go, and I'll plan it for you. But I'm going to sit in the van and wait for you guys to get back. Uh, but the kids begged me and begged me, oh, Mr. Aaron, that's what they called us. Mr. Aaron, please come with us, please come with us. So I got myself on the boat. I said, okay, if I get myself on the boat, then I know... As long as I get myself there, there's no turning back, right? I'm stuck. Like once you leave the bank, there's no jumping over the, you know, you're not going to jump over and swim to the bank because then you're just going to be stuck there. So I had to stay in the boat. So there is an inevitability of me getting on there and then just having to go with the river. And that's kind of the same with the coming of the kingdom. The, The renewal of all things is inevitable. We can't stop it. It's happening. God, Jesus is making all things new. So depending on where you're at with Jesus, um, that's either the most scary thing that you could ever hear, (laughs) you can't put a stop to it, or it's the most comforting, um, affirming thing that you can hear as a follower of Jesus, knowing that God's kingdom is inevitable. However, knowing that doesn't quite guarantee that we won't be impatient in the meantime. It seems in in almost every generation since even before Jesus arrived, God's people have been anxious to see his promises come to pass. Uh, The Psalms are filled with anxiety, raw anxiety and impatience, asking the question, uh, where are you, God? How long, God? When will you come? We see it in even Revelation, the book that the the 21 verse five is in. Uh, In chapter six, verse 10, uh, the martyrs who have lost their lives lies for the kingdom, ask Jesus, how long, sovereign Lord, when will you come? When will we see your justice? When will we see your kingdom come? Uh, Gary L. Thomas, in his book, Authentic Faith, names this anxiety that we all share. It's a human thing, not just our cultural moment, though it's been exasperated in our culture. Uh, we've always struggled with this. And he names it and says, despite our obsession with instant results, we, we serve a God whose calendar moves by millennia and not minutes, and who thinks in terms of generations and not seasons, Unless we understand this about God, we will never understand. Um, we'll never understand His ways with us. God won't be rushed, and without a willingness to wait, we will be regularly frustrated with God and may become disillusioned in our faith. So when it comes to God's timing with things, it frustrates us because it's much slower than the pace we would prefer. And both the slow progress of him making all things new in the world, but also his work in us, we can regularly become frustrated at the slow pace of God's work in making us new. Yet it's more than just the timing of the kingdom that frustrates us. It's also the nature of the kingdom being elusive, as elusive as it is, making it hard to put your finger on it or see it or point to it. Jesus himself names this elusiveness in a few different places in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 13, verses 18 to 21, Jesus tells two parables back to back, the first one about the kingdom being like a mustard seed and the second one about the kingdom being like yeast. And he says this, "'Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? "'What shall I compare it to? "'It's like a mustard seed "'which a man took and planted in his garden, "'and it grew and became a tree, "'and the birds perched in its branches.'" And then the second parable, again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And then also in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 21, Jesus is a bit more direct here and makes it even more clear. He says, uh, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's in your midst. See, Jesus' followers at the time may not have been a part of a hurry culture like us, but they had been waiting a long time for the coming Messiah to come and establish God's throne here on earth in powerful and obvious ways. And so here, Jesus assures his followers, yes, don't worry, the kingdom is here. I promise you, the kingdom is here because I am here. But your desire to have it all at once, to come like a big bang, is not the way of my God. It's not the way of God. N.T. Wright, commenting on these passages, puts it this way. He says, Jesus wanted his followers to live with the tension of believing that the kingdom was indeed arriving in and through Jesus' own work and that this kingdom would come, would fully arrive, not all in a bang, but through a process like the slow growth of a plant or the steady leavening of a loaf. So, His followers had their own timetable, much like we do, and expected God to conform to their sense of timing, what they wanted to see. But God moves by millennia and not minutes. Now we're talking about God's kingdom here coming in the world. And you might be wondering, well, what does this have to do with our sanctification, God's kingdom coming in us, in our own hearts? And in this series, Scott has been talking about the way that God makes us holy as he is. He mentioned last week that holiness, or a couple weeks ago, that holiness has two sides to it. First, there's an idea of being set apart like Israel being set apart from the surrounding nations, but then second, it also has this idea of being shaped by the character of God and looking more like Jesus as we progress in our faith, as we walk with Jesus. Uh, Things like love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, though that's not a limited list. Those are the kinds of things that God is like or the way that we can describe God, and God wants those things to be also the way that we describe ourselves and each other. And so holiness, in other words, is the character of God, and it's also the character of his reign. If you were wondering and were asking, what is God's kingdom like? You just have to look at the character of God, the character of Jesus, and you would know. And so where Jesus reigns, where Jesus is king, there is holiness, both in the world and more importantly, in ourselves, in our hearts. So just as God can't be rushed in making all things new, he also can't be rushed in making us new. The elusiveness, the slowness of our own redemption can be painfully frustrating. Just like it is to, to want to see God's work in the world, it's also, it also can be so frustrating to want to see God's work in us and not seeing it happen in the same ways that we'd want it to happen, right? So in one sense, we've been declared holy by the blood of Christ, who has washed our sin away, and in another sense, we're on this process, on this journey of becoming holy like Jesus. Gary L. Thomas, uh, who I mentioned before, calls this tension, or calls it a tension between our declared holiness and our experiential holiness. Uh, A tension that we can sometimes respond to with impatience, especially in a hurry culture. And left unaddressed, if the impatience is left unaddressed, it can actually lead to a kind of soul sickness or what St. John of the Cross calls soul fatigue. Soul fatigue. And this soul sickness and this soul fatigue is where we desire to be like Jesus, yet because of the spirit in us, we're even more aware than ever that there are parts of us that need to be changed, that need to look more like Jesus. And that can result in a a sort of um, impatience that it, or a fatigue or a frustration and usually this gets disguised as zeal. I don't know if you, when you were younger and you first started following Jesus but for myself I remember being 18 and I worked at Starbucks, I point to Lee because he worked at Starbucks too, <laughs> um, and, uh, and I remember I used to join in with my coworkers and teasing other coworkers that I had and there was just kind of this environment, this toxic environment that I worked in and I would join in and, and I would go to my my car afterwards, and I go, God, why am I doing that? Why am I joining in with this kind of joking and teasing? And it wasn't until one time I, I, actually crossed the line with some of my jokes, and I made one of my coworkers cry. I found her in the back room later on crying, because I had actually really hurt her. And I went home that night so frustrated with myself. And I went to my mom, and I was like, mom, I don't know what's wrong with me. She's a great Christian woman. And she just looked at me and said, Aaron, you're 18. God's not done with you. He's not done with you. You're still learning. But a part of me wanted to put You know, the things down and be like, I am going to focus on being absolutely perfect. And so I would go to work and I'd sit in the car and be like, God. I'm just gonna go in there and I'm gonna be the best person, perfect person, and I'm not gonna joke at all. And I would go in and then time and time again, I'd find myself joking and joking and joking. And so my zealousness, my desire to be this perfect Christian and, and go in there was A, because I had the spirit in me. So I had that desire in me to be like Jesus, but then B, part of it was a pride, a sense of pride that I wanted to be that perfect person and be better than them and, and go in there. And so there was this pride aspect And usually our impatience, or sometimes our impatience, can be disguised as zeal, where we're going out and we're trying harder, but it's actually secretly fueled by pride, by ambition, and by self-interest. From the outside, we look like we're we're just in love with Jesus and we want to be like him. Um, I think back to that time in my life. But on the inside, there's a pridefulness in wanting to rush God in the process, Uh, maybe even an offensive and accusatory attitude towards God. I got very vile towards God when I was frustrated with him. God, why haven't you helped me with this? Why haven't you gotten rid of this sin that keeps appearing in my life? It's your fault that this keeps coming up. St. John of the Cross says in his book, uh, The Dark Night of the Soul, he says, some Christians in becoming aware of their own imperfections grow angry with themselves in an unhumble impatience. So impatient are they about these imperfections that they would want to become saints in a day. They do not have the patience to wait until God gives them what they need when he so desires. Perhaps it's struggling with causing harm with our words, like I was. Maybe it's compromising our faith to fit in with the group. Maybe it's being quick to anger with our spouse or with our kids, or the secret addictions that we feed when no one is looking or is around. We don't want to do those things because we have the Spirit, which is why we're so desperate to have Jesus make us new now, (laughs) But the truth is, is the pursuit of holiness takes hard and consistent and patient work in cooperation with God's spirit. There will be times of failure. There will be times of seasons of setback. It's just as inevitable of the, as the kingdom coming that we will experience that. But Jesus calls us to have patience as we wait for the completion of his work of holiness like yeast in our souls, We're called to pursue our sanctification with what um, I like to call um, uh, patient anticipation. Patient anticipation. Uh, What that is, is that recognizing that one-time obedience does not have the power or ability to put death to sin, but rather it's an everyday and every moment choice of being obedient to Jesus that eventually chips away the boulder that is our sin until it's gone and eventually the spirit sows in us a holiness that makes its way through us like yeast in a loaf of bread. And we end up looking back one day, and even though we aren't able to put our finger on it or point to it and say, there it is, or here it is, that was the moment I overcame this sin, we will just look back and see that the general direction of our life has changed. And we are where we are because of God's slow process working in us, his holiness. Now, don't get me wrong. There are amazing stories of people who have overcome sin overnight, but that is not the way it is with all of us. That is an exception to the rule. And God can do that because he makes the rules. (laughs) But most of the time it's this way, that God works in us in a slow and patient way. In other words, our sanctification or our holy Character uh, and pursuing that requires persistent repentance, vigilance, and small acts of obedience. I I think of those in our church who come to mind. Uh, Jerry, who's not here, so I feel bad mentioning him (laughs) in here, but Jerry's stewardship and the way that he takes care of this building. Uh, Sue, uh, her hospitality and having people over, her stewardship and taking care of the outside of the building. Jocelyn, uh, who was here two seconds ago, she's not in the room, so I'm talking about people who are not in the room. There she is. <laughs> Jocelyn's compassion, uh, Karen Vogel and her praying, Janet, your joy, Donald, if he's here, his compassion, so many others I couldn't name. That, that wasn't always the case. That wasn't always them. That wasn't always Jerry. It became Jerry through everyday obedience, it became Sue, it became Jocelyn. So there was no sudden ejection of sin and injection of holiness that took place. Instead, we're called to learn how to live without sin and live by the Spirit of God, chipping away until God works his holiness in us. So what does patient anticipation look like in action other than just patience with our own sanctification? Well, first, this actually flows into our patience with the church. Again, we're not the only ones who have struggled with impatience, with God's making of all things new. Even in North Africa, all the way back in the fourth century, a group called the the Donatists came out teaching that the church can only be composed of those without sin. Uh, (laughs) And consequently, a priest was expected to have no personal sin whatsoever or their ministry was ineffective and the church they led was not a real church. Phew. Great. Great that our pastors don't sin, hey? That's awesome. I just, that was sarcasm, by the way. <laughs> we definitely sin. Uh, and, and so they're right in the sense that the church is called to be holy. They were declared heretical uh, shortly after they came on the scene. Um, but their, their heart was reading scripture and they are going, well, first Peter talks about Jesus' church being this perfect, holy uh, gathering of people. But we have to remember the declared holiness versus the experiential holiness that Thomas told us about in our sanctification it also applies to the church as a whole in Ephesians chapter five verse twenty three to twenty seven it says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and Pay attention to the tense in this. Cleansing her, not having cleansed her, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So you see that tense there. It's a process. It's happening even now. As uh, my old professor from Ambrose, Bernie Waal, says in his book on holiness, he says, we must hold both understandings of the church intention. The church is both presently holy and as God enables it, progressing towards holiness, just like we are. And there are two reasons why I bring this up today, and two reasons I think it's important. First, because our own sanctification is mirrored in the larger church. We are the church, and so if this is happening in our hearts, then of course it's gonna be happening with the church uh, in a greater way. And then second, because there's a trend in my generation, uh, although realistically it's always been the case, to look at all the different ways that the church has atrociously failed to represent Christ and have simply just walked away from it, walked away from her and given up on her. I have personal friends who have completely walked away and others who still hold on to their faith but have knowingly or not demonized the church. And I think among all of this, it needs to be said that the same slow, all-encompassing, yeast-like way that God's holiness works through us is the same way that it works through the church as a whole. Which means we may be tempted to give up on her or demonize her or be overly critical. But like with our own life, we're called to exercise patient anticipation. I know for myself, I used to tell my friends when I first became a Christian that we don't need the church (laughs) and that it's all about your own personal relationship with Jesus and I didn't really go to church and today I can find myself reading some of the atrocious things that the church has done in the past and I become overcritical. I'll even admit it it makes me feel good, superior even when I talk with non-Christians and I tear down the church because of the abuses of power throughout history and even today. However, then I'm reminded of all the good things that the church has done. Uh, establishing the first ever orphanages, uh, hospitals, schools, food banks, or even movements throughout history like the abolishment of slavery. And I'm, I have to come back and remind myself that my own pursuit of holiness and the patience I have in that is the same patience I'm called to have with the church. Really, it all comes down to this, that Jesus loves the church. He loves the church. This doesn't mean we can't call the church out or repent of the ways the church has failed to be Jesus in the world. We need more of that repentance. But it means we don't give up on her, we don't demonize her, or unrealistically expect the church to be perfect tomorrow. Because the truth is, is that one day the church will be complete, without wrinkle, perfectly holy like her groom Jesus. But until then, we're called to exercise patient anticipation, Which leads us to another way that this applies beyond just our own sanctification. It also applies to each other's sanctification with each other. Understanding the slow yeast-like way holiness permeates itself through us in the church, it helps us have grace for one another. Sometimes, as Christians, we draw clear lines of, this is what Christians do and say, and we have in our minds those who are in and those who are out. And often, that kind of judgment comes from our own expectation that other people should be where we are in our journey towards holiness. Um, But that's not always the case, And there are parts of everyone's lives, including our own, where we haven't submitted certain parts of us to Jesus or been changed by Jesus in that way. And so just like we might get frustrated with ourselves, demanding God to work on our time frame, we can sometimes do the same with others. Again, this underlying pride and self-interest where we want our children or our friends or other people in the church to look like us, to be holy like us. It reminds me of like the youth when they say things like good vibes or slay. I actually usually it's more like Slay <laughs> that's how they say it. Or or the phrase or the phrase, I love that for you. Okay. I have to hold back. <laughs> no one day one day they'll come to no, understand how annoying those phrases are and they'll be holy like me. I'm just kidding. I just I had to tease them a little bit. <laughs> but but I am reminded, here's a real story. I am reminded of a story of one of my professors that they told. Um, there was this fella in the church who was a part of a gang, a motorcycle gang, and he had fall into his knees and accepted Jesus in his life, and so he moved on from that, and then he decided to be a part of the church, and he wanted to be a part of their prayer team. Um, And so, you know, he had tattoos. He'd show up early for the prayer meeting, and he'd be standing there outside the church, and he has tattoos all over. He's chain-smoking, and he's standing there waiting to join their prayer. Um, And then he'd come in, and when it was his turn to pray, he would let out a few unwholesome words (laughs) here and there. Um, But his heart was fully for Jesus. It was fully for Jesus. My professor, he told us he put uh, the other leaders to shame in his compassion and generosity. Uh, when he first wanted to join the team, they had a hard time, obviously, because they were intimidated. They didn't like his language. Uh, he didn't like, they didn't like that he was chain-smoking outside before the prayer meeting. But even though Jesus hadn't touched that, those specific parts of his life yet, his language, maybe some of his practices, it didn't mean that there weren't other very real, very beautiful ways that Jesus was at work in him. So we have to be aware of both the speed and the order of the areas of our lives that Jesus works on. It looks different for each person. The spirit is in them working and we need to be patient that God is doing that work. And so we're called to have patient anticipation for one another. As Paul says from prison to the church in Ephesus, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love and make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So as I wrap up this morning, Where is it that we need to exercise patient anticipation? Maybe it's with the church and the frustrations we have and all the ways that the church has yet to grow. Maybe it's with someone we're walking with who seems to be taking steps backwards or just not getting it. Or perhaps we just have to start with having patience for ourselves and our own walk with God and our patience with God and what he's doing. I'll be honest, as someone who has anxiety, I've, I've worked on this. And I've realized that as, and I'm still working on this, I've realized that as I prep for this sermon, one of the things that I regularly struggle with as a pastor is reading all the books. <laughs> I pride myself on how much I read. Uh, but that's the thing. I'm in a rush, I realized, when I do that. I'm in a rush to be the perfect pastor, to be the perfect Christian, the one who's figured it all out. But that's never gonna be true of me at least not until I meet Jesus in the next life. So in that, there's grace. But there's also a challenge, a real challenge. I've been thinking about how I can slow down and submit to God's timing of things and yield. And that's the biggest thing that I want us to take away from today, is yielding. We're talking about a kingdom here, the king. We aren't in charge. And either we yield and submit and take the time to slowly dwell in his presence, to listen to his direction, and focus on the small ways we can be obedient today, opposed to trying to jump on to tomorrow. Or we will frustrate our souls, working against the spirit and his timing, trying to rush God. So recently I've been falling in love with the prayers of Ted Loader. I don't know if you know that name. He's got a beautiful book of prayer. Um, they're some of the most honest, most real prayers I've ever read. And as we wrap up this morning, I want to end with one of his prayers. Uh, so as I pray, I encourage us to just echo these words in our hearts and make them our own prayer of repentance and of our impatience, a repentance of our impatience, and then asking for God's holy patience. So let's pray. O God of all seasons and sense, grant me, grant us, your sense of timing to submit gracefully and rejoice quietly in the turn of the seasons. And in this season of short days and long nights of gray and white and cold, of the hunkered-down seeds growing deep in their sleep, watching over by gnarled-limbed grandparent trees, resting from autumn's staggering energy of the silent whirling earth circling to race back home to the sun. Oh God, grant us your sense of timing. In this season of short days and long nights of gray and white and cold, teach me, teach us the lessons of endings. Children, growing friends, leaving, grieving over grudges, over blaming, over excuses, over, oh God, grant us your sense of timing. In this season of short days and long nights of gray and white and cold, teach me your lessons of beginnings, that such waitings and endings may be a starting place, a starting place to wait for something right and just and different, a new song, a deeper relationship, a fuller love in the fullness of your time. Oh God, grant us your sense of timing. Amen.